Man, the room feels fantastic. You guys were singing great. It is good to see all of us gathered together here at 930. Uh, I don't know if your company or the place that you work does some sort of team build, building uh, day there where they get you together, maybe do a lunch or a picnic or, or maybe some sort of outing. There was a company that said, hey, we're going to build some teamwork. And what we're going to do is we're going to go out and have a softball game. And the softball game is going to be made up of, of the two departments in our company. One was the marketing department and the other was the support and administration department. And so they get together, they go out there, they have a softball game and the support team absolutely wipes the floor with the marketing team, right? They, they lose terribly, the marketing team does. And marketing team, knowing that, hey, this is all about how we market this, they decide they want to strike first blood because you can imagine all of the, the, the things that are going to be said throughout the year of, from the support team saying, hey, we beat you and the bragging rights and all that. So the marketing team says, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to show up early on Monday morning and we're going to put something on the bulletin board. And this is what they wrote. It says, the marketing department is pleased to announce that we came in second place in the recent softball season after losing but just one game all year. The support department, however, had a rather dismal season, winning only one game. <laughs> winning only one game. It's all about perspective, isn't it? It's all about perspective. Some of you might call that spin. Some of you might call that spin, but at the end of the day, it's perspective. How do you look at it? How do you look at a, a one-game season? Perspective is something that our culture is all about right now. You can go to the, the, the bookstore, Books a Million or Amazon, and you can find stuff on perspective like growth mindset or, or how you approach life, even changing your perspective. And, and that's all well and good, and I don't have any issues with it, right? It makes sense to be able to look at failures as opportunities and, and struggles as things that you will one day overcome. That's a source of perspective. For us as believers, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, perspective is something we've been dealing with from the very beginning. We call it an eternal perspective. I think that's what God is asking of us and wanting of us and desiring of us is an eternal perspective. Now, let me just define that for us and then we'll make sure we're all working with the same definition. An eternal perspective is the idea that I assess the temporal things in my life the temporal things, the things that aren't going to last forever, your money, your job, your cars, your, your career, all your hobbies, all of that stuff, right? Measuring it and assessing it in light of the eternal, the things that will last forever. I would argue that there are three things that are going to last forever. One is God. He is the uncreated creator. He is going to last forever. Isaiah 48 says that his word is going to last forever. The flower fades and the, the grass withers, but the word of God will stand forever. So those two things we know are going to last forever, right? God and his word. And then there's a third thing, us. We're going to last forever. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in the son. He who has a son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. So those are the three things that are going to last. So this is what eternal perspective is. How do I assess my life? based on God and his word and eternal life. How do I assess it? How, how do I look at all of the temporal things and measure those up to, to God and his word and, and eternal life? Well, we said that in this series of resilient, we've looked at 2 Corinthians 4 a ton because that's our theme verse, right? This idea of 
persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. At the tail end of that chapter, let me read these words to you because this is the heart of eternal perspective. Verse 16 says, Therefore we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. That's eternal perspective. This outside is going to go. It's going to fade. Matter of fact, I've probably had three conversations already this morning of somebody who did a little bit too much work on Saturday and they're feeling it today, right? That is your body. It is going to break down. It's not going to last forever. But the inside says it will. That's what we got here, the spirit. Then it says, verse 17, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. That's eternal. That's the eternal perspective. This idea that there is this amazing weight of glory. And then he goes on in verse 18. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We don't focus on what we see, touch, and feel now because it's not going to last forever. That's why Jesus said the things like, why would you store up for yourself treasures on earth that rust and moth can destroy, but rather we would store our treasures up in heaven where they'll be there forever. This is eternal perspective. So for us, as we look at it, the reason why we're talking about that is because I would say one of the key ingredients to having a resilient life one of the key ingredients would, have, would be to have eternal perspective. If you want to be resilient, if you want to bounce back, if you want to, want to be one of those people that, that's pressured but not crushed, if, if you want to be one of those people that is persecuted but not abandoned, if you want to be one of those kind of folks, then one of the key ingredients is, is eternal perspective. If you got your Bibles, Acts chapter 6 and 7, I told you up front we're going to just take Bible characters. We just got through finishing Esther. We're going to spend one week on a guy named Stephen. He just has two chapters in your Bible, Acts 6 and 7. And I want to actually go to the tail end of his life because I think that is the epitome of eternal perspective. We know Stephen. If you know your Bible, you know Stephen is the very first martyr. And I'm going to say this. I don't think you lose your life for the sake of Jesus unless you have eternal perspective. I don't think you're losing your life for the sake of Jesus unless you have eternal perspective. So let's take a look at it. Start reading in verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. It says, When they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen's going to preach a sermon. I'm going to go over that here in a moment. And his sermon makes some people mad, so mad that this is what's going to happen. Verse 55, but Stephen, filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, then they screamed, the religious leaders, they screamed at the top of their voices and covered their ears. Think two-year-old here, right? La, 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 la. And together they rushed him. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now they were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep or he died. 
I think when I look at this, I see eternal perspective all over it. The first one is, let's just talk about stoning just for a moment. I know this is a horrendous, brutal act. And I'm not just describing this for you because it's some sort of shock effect. I want you to think, what would it take to endure this? What would it take to endure being pushed off? This is, he says, thrown out of the city. What they would do is they'd find about a two-story, 20-foot high place, and they would push them off with every intention of them landing on their head. That way the thing's done. If they don't land on their head, they start picking up rocks. Their hope is they either land on their head or break their back, and then therefore they can't get up and run. Then they start pelting them with rocks. What does it take to endure that? What does it take? Or there's another method. Another method is where they would wrap a shroud around you, cover you from head to toe. And if you were a man, they'd bury you waist high. And if you were a female, they'd bury you chest high. And then they would say, hey, whoever's making the judgment here, you get to throw the first stone. Or if you're a witness, you throw the first stone. Does that sound familiar with the woman caught in adultery? That's how that one would have worked. Crazy, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine being buried and not being able to see and somebody calls something out against you and then there it comes? And then finally, uh, another one would be is where they break your legs and then just begin to stone you or they would have tied you to a pole, hands and feet with no ability to do anything. I don't know about you, but when you could see somebody getting mad enough to do that to you, you might wanna back up a tad on what you were claiming. But you don't if you have eternal perspective. Did you see eternal perspective in the passage? Did you see it? He said, I am looking to the heavens and I see God and I see Jesus. That's what he says. He says he sees the son of man standing at the right hand. That's what he sees. I don't know if anybody else sees it. Matter of fact, I think no one else sees it. This is Stephen looking into heavens. He is looking for God. He's not looking for, he's not looking for a way out. He's not looking for somebody to bail him out. He's not looking for safety. He's not looking for protection. He is looking for God. The second thing he says is, Receive my spirit. Remember that 2 Corinthians 4 passage I just read to you? He knows you can take my body, but you can't take my spirit. Because what lasts forever? The spirit lasts forever. He knows it. You can take my body, have it. It's going to be painful. It is a short, light, momentary affliction because I know my spirit will be with God. And then he says something else that is incredibly crazy. He says, don't hold it against them. Don't hold it against them. I don't know about you, but I'm holding it against them, isn't it, right? He says, don't do it. Don't charge them with this sin. That's eternal perspective because he's looking at them and he realizes there is eternal life. And even though they hate me and they're going to kill me, I do not want them to spend eternity separated from God. Crazy, isn't it? That's eternal perspective. Now, I could stop the sermon there, and probably most of you would be happy with that, and then I'd say, go have it. Go have eternal perspective. Go measure everything in your life according to God and his word and eternal life. Go do that, and it'll be great. But the problem is this. Most of us would probably say, how? How? Or where does that come from in a man like that? So what I'm going to do is let's go back to Acts chapter 6 where we are introduced to Stephen and maybe see if we can figure out how do we get eternal perspective. Acts chapter 6, while you're turning there, 
Acts and Luke are written by the same guy. The book of Luke is the biography of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection. The book of Acts is a biography, but it's a biography of the church. It's a biography of how people respond to the death, the burial, and the resurrection and the claims of Jesus Christ. First five chapters, things are going great. The church is growing. People are coming to know this Jesus Christ. They're primarily getting these converts from the Jewish faith. And then we have, with growth, some complexity. So let's take a look at it. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, as the number of disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So then the 12 summoned the whole community of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this, this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. So this is what's happening. The, the church is growing and widows need to be taken care of, but there's two types of widows. One that have more of a Hellenistic or a Greek background. One that would be more Judaistic or Orthodox. And you can imagine the Orthodox Jewish Christians are looking down their nose at the Greek Jewish Christian widows. And they are saying, we should get the, we should get the service first. So the Hellenistic widows say, but we should get some too. And so in order to handle this, the 12, the 12 disciples, right, the, the 12 guys that have been walking with Jesus, or 11 plus one actually, they sit back and say, listen, we got to be telling people about the guy we spent three years with. That's what we have to do. We need you guys to figure out the serving of tables from someone else. I need you to, to nominate from amongst you some guys you trust, good reputation, full of the spirit, got some wisdom, who can handle the distribution of food. That's what I need y'all to do. And we're going to get a list of seven names here in a minute. You guessed it. One of them's going to be Stephen. Now, I just want to stop there just for a second because you notice the qualifications were full of the spirit, wisdom, and good reputation. But before that, I... Can I just kind of stop the sermon right now for a second? I just want to stop it, and I want to take off my preacher hat, and I want to put on my campus pastor hat. Can I do that just for a second? It's going to be a little weird. Just remember all of this. I'm going to come back to it in five minutes. This is what I want to do. I get to a passage like this, and I really just want to stay here just for a moment. Because I don't know, like today, 55, 56 weeks since we got to start meeting again after this whole thing shut down. Remember when it all shut down? It feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? We shut down and all of us moved inside and we started worshiping online. And then 55 weeks ago, we pull a trailer out here and we start meeting in the parking lot. And then slowly but surely as we meet, we begin to get to a point where we are today. We, we came back inside, and those of you remember, we came back inside, and there were no red chairs in here, and you had to bring your own chairs. Some of y'all remember that. Some of you remember where you came in here, and there was nothing, no radius kids, and so you had to worship with your children. Some of you remember no coffee. Some of you remember, like, when did all of this stuff gradually start happening? You see, when we started meeting 55 weeks ago, there were probably 250 to 300 folks in that parking lot. And today, we'll probably have 700 people walk through these doors on a Sunday morning. 
over the course of these 55 weeks. Now, this is what I want to tell you. I'm fixing to read seven names. And when I read these seven names, I got seven names that come to mind. I got names of people who, with every iteration of us coming to this spot, served. I got names of people who volunteered week in and week out to be out there at 5.30 in the morning to set up that sound system and to stay till the end. I, I got names of people when we said, hey, we're opening Radius Kids back up. They said, we're in. And they're over there right now making disciples of our children. When we said in the fall, we're going to need small groups, there were people who said, we're in. We'll do that. When we had to do something different with our students and put them in host and, and said, hey, who would do that? We had people come up and say, we're in. When we said, hey, it's now time to start making coffee, we're in. When it's time to hold the door, we're in. To make some ushering, we're in. To fold bulletins, we're in. To set up the parking lot, the tables and all that, we're in. And I, let me be, let me, I could not be more proud. I could not be more proud of what has happened in the last 55 weeks. I wish I could name every person here. I wish I could. Because, man, we would not have been able to do this without you. I could not be more proud of it. So here's the deal. God, God is good. You, you heard yourself singing a minute ago. Look around. This thing is, this, this place looks great, doesn't it? So here's the deal. In a couple of months, we're going to need more small group leaders. Right? We're, we're going to kick this thing off in August, and we're going to need more small group leaders. We're probably going to have to double them. And we're going to need more people to make disciples and kiddos. And we're going to need people who are going to rise up and say, I'll help in students. And we're going to need more people to, to help hold doors and greet and welcome folks as they walk in. We're going to need more people to, to man the booth back there. And there's some folks holed up in a closet clicking slides, right? <laughs> we're going to need it. And I just want to say, man, I'd love for you to participate in that. I'd love for you to do that. If that was one of you over the last 55 weeks, thank you. I wish I could say all of your names. Thank you. If you want to jump in, we'd love for you to do it. After the service, I'll be right down here. Love to shake your hand, get your information, text that number on the back of that seat and say, I'm in. Love to have you. Campus pastor hat off, preacher hat back on. You ready? <laughs> Let's look at these names. Verse 5. The proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they had, they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So remember, the whole thing, the, 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 the qualifications were good reputation, Wisdom filled with the Spirit. I believe these men were chosen not because they had great titles and not because they were, they were you know, well-to-do men in the community. I think they were chosen because they were probably already doing this. They were probably already doing it. They were probably already serving in some way, shape, or form. So let's see if we can see where wisdom and the Holy Spirit shows up. Look at verse 8. Chapter 6, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some, from what is called the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Sicily and Asia, came forward and disputed with Stephen. The reason they disputed with him is because people were leaving Judaism and converting to Christianity, and they didn't like that. So now it's time to face one of these preachers. Verse 10. 
but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom, there's the qualification, and spirit by whom he was speaking. Verse 11, then they persuaded some of the men to say, we've heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They start lying about Stephen. Let me pause here and talk just a tad about eternal perspective. You notice it said, filled with the spirit and wisdom. I think those two things are tied together, and here's the reason why. Because Proverbs 9.10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I know when we think of wisdom, we think of people who are able to diagnose situations well, or they read books all the time. And I guess that's a part of it. That's an academic type of wisdom, and that's valued as well. But I think this is a different kind of wisdom. I think godly wisdom comes from a fear of the Lord, and fear of the Lord is awe, majesty, reverence, and worship. So this is my first point about eternal perspective. I believe your eternal perspective is in proportion to your view of God. I believe it's in proportion to your view of God. The higher your view of God, the greater your eternal perspective. The smaller your view of God, the less you'll measure things by him. It's just the way it works. Or in other words, to give you mountain language, the higher the mountain, the better the view. You get up 14,000 feet in Colorado and you can see for not miles, not tens of miles, but hundreds of miles, that's a view, isn't it? Because you can see it. And you can appreciate it. And now, because we have this amazing view of God, I now am able to see really what my hobby's, what it's really worth. As I have this amazing view of God, I can look at it and say, this is what my career really is. When I have this massive view of the death, burial, and resurrection, I can come over here and I can see what my, my sin really is like. The bigger your view of God, the greater your eternal perspective. And I would say the smaller your view of God, the less less likely you are to measure things by it. Which leads me to the second one. Eternal perspective and wisdom go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Because of our view of God, we're able to get up and we're able to see more and around. And therefore, we, we can look at it and see, just like I said, what is my stuff really work? worth? What, what, what is it really that I'm putting all this time, effort, and energy into? Uh, another phrase that we like to use is this. Um, you can't see the forest because of the trees. There's some of us that get like that, don't we? We are so busy staring at our hobby, staring at our career, staring at our 401k that you can't. There's, there's something way bigger than that. And you've missed it. You have missed it. We have got to get up so we can see all around it, all the angles, see the forest, not just staring at the tree. It's like being in a boat and you're going to come around the, the river on a point and all you can see is that bend. But if you're up on the cliff, you can see all the twists and turns. What are you seeing? What's your perspective? The third one would be this. I think eternal perspective breeds empathy. 
You know, when you really see God for who he is and you're able to see the forest and not just the trees and all the angles around it, you begin to see that maybe people who have a different perspective than me, they're not so bad. Maybe you can start to see their perspective instead of just arguing with them. It it creates this empathy as now we have a high view of God and we also have a high view of his creation that People aren't determined by their race and culture. They're defined by being imagers of God, right? Like, what would that be like if we had that kind of view of God that we looked at our coworker as not as somebody who's just supposed to pick up the slack or doesn't work hard enough or my boss who's a jerk? What if we just, we could see people as God sees them? But that happens only when we have eternal perspective, and we can assess it accordingly. So as I look at this, I I wonder for many of us, what's the eternal perspective? How do you view God? How do you view your stuff? Have you ever kind of lined them up and said, which one is worth more? Where's your focus? The crazy thing about the rest of this passage is that I think Stephen is fixing to preach the longest sermon recorded in history or in Scripture because... um, because he's going to give an indictment of the fact that they don't have eternal perspective. Let's keep reading in chapter 6, verse 11. Then they persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. We're going to find some people to lie about him. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came dragging him off and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy the place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of of an angel. Now, I don't have time to read all of this. I just want to give you a few highlights. Does everybody see the trees they're looking at? This is the hardest part for the Jews, and it's the hardest part for the rest of Acts and books like Galatians and others. You ready? This is all they're looking at. They're looking at a temple, and they're looking at the law, and they are failing to see that God is way bigger than a temple and the law. This is what's crazy. Sometimes we don't have eternal perspective because we're so zeroed in on our religious stuff. That's crazy. That's a sermon, isn't it? I wonder what we just zone in on thinking that's great when we're still missing the glory of God. Now watch this. I'm going to walk through just a few highlights, and I want to show you how Stephen is trying to get them to go up. Let's take a look at the first few verses. They tell him, verse seven or chapter 7, verse 1, Is this true, the high priest asked. Verse two, brothers and fathers, he said, listen, the God of glory, there it is, the God of glory, big view of God. I need you to have a big view of God here. I'm not talking about the temple. I'm not talking about the law. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. Now, some of you would sit back and say, oh, he's gonna go through the history of the Jews. I don't think so because it's not even chronologically correct. I think he's going to do something else. Does everybody see those places he mentions there? Mesopotamia, Haran, that is not Jerusalem. That is not the Temple Mount. And he just said God showed up there, which means God's bigger than your place. God's bigger than your one locale. 
He's going to go on. He's going to say it some more. Verse 3, and he said to them, get out of your country and away from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. That's what God said to Abraham. And then in verse 4, he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, there's another marker, and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had moved him, moved to this land you now live in. And he didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and through the, the descendants after him, even though he was childless. He's looking at him and saying, you're making such a big deal about this land. Abraham didn't even fully realize all of it. Why are you making such a big deal about it? He goes on. Skip down to verse 9. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Where? In Egypt. You guys are missing it. All you want is a temple and law, but listen, God is bigger than that. He was in Egypt with Joseph. Let's keep reading. Go down to verse 17. At the time was drawing near to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham. The people flourished and multiplied in Egypt. Not only were they in Egypt, but they were doing great in Egypt. You guys are making a big deal about one place. He goes over here to verse 30. I'm skipping a ton of the sermon. You can thank me later. Verse 30. <laughs> After 40 years had passed, talking about Moses, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai, Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at that sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came to him. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He goes, you guys are making a big deal about law and place, and here's God showing up in a burning bush. Why don't you get a bigger view of God? Why don't you get a bigger view? He goes on, verse 41. The sermon continues. This is where it starts to get rough. Then they even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. Then God turned away and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. I'll keep reading 42 here in a minute. This is, this is how you know you have a teeny tiny view of God. While Moses is up getting the law, they're out there crafting a gold cow to worship. That's a teeny tiny view of God. And look at the perspective, what he says next. House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness? No, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship. So I will deport you beyond Babylon. You wanna know why y'all had to go to captivity? Because you had such a poor view of me that you worship lesser gods. That's what you did. He's begging them to get a big view. And just in case you think I'm crazy, look here at verse 48 through 57. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, my earth, my, and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? You hear what Stephen's telling him? You got to have a big view of God. You got to have a bigger view of God. You think that temple's something God's like, I don't need a temple. You think I need this? I don't need any of this. And then look at what Stephen says. This is what drove him to stone him. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, 
You are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. So do you, which meaning you can't see it, no wisdom. And because you don't have wisdom is because you don't have a big view of God. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of the angels, and yet you have not kept it. Here's the reason why. is because you don't see God. You see a tree, and you want to just look at the tree and stare at it instead of letting that tree point you to an amazing forest that is the glory and the grace of God. And if we want to have an eternal perspective, you have got to quit looking at trees. I've got to quit looking at my stuff. And I've got to get my eyes above. So let me be clear. We come in this room once a week. And we do it not because we just want to sing our favorite songs or to listen to me get crazy up here or just to take communion. We do this to remember how big our God is. That's why we do it. Because we want to walk out of here with a big view of God so that we can assess our stuff based on that. That's why this is so important. That's why we take that bread and juice to remember Jesus Christ died for you. He died for you. The King of kings and Lord of lords died for you. Is that a big deal? Or a little deal. You start thinking about that as a big deal, it helps us assess the rest of it, right? Simple question. How big is your view of God? How big is it? You're going to get a chance to sing a couple of tunes. You're going to get a chance to come down here and, and take these elements. And I hope that before you do it, you would just, I just hope you'd cry out to him and tell him just how big he is. Tell the truth about him. That's a long prayer, actually, but just tell, tell the truth about him. He's a big God. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I, uh, it is so easy to just get caught up in the here and now and to just completely be so focused on my stuff and my, my kids' activities and what I got to do next and what's the next step. I, and I can just completely miss you. And I don't want to do that, Lord. I, I want to see you as who you are. I don't want to worship lesser gods. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to give your glory to another. And so, Lord, I pray right now that we would um, we'd see you as the big God you are. And in order for us to be resilient, Lord, we would, we would know that even though we can be struck down, we're not destroyed because there's eternal life. And even though we are persecuted, we're not abandoned. You're with us. Lord, even though there's confusion, we won't despair. And I pray that we would be resilient because we have a big view of you and your son, Jesus Christ. I pray as we sing these songs and as we we take the cup that you'd be honored and it would cause us to remember just how good you are. Lord, that's what we ask. It's in your son's name. Amen.